Leaning Toward Wisdom, the podcast, Modern Tales of an Ancient Pursuit, for Thursday, November the 16th, 2023. Greetings and welcome inside the Ella Studio. My name is Randy Kentrell. I'm your host here. The website is leaningtowardwisdom.com, and let me begin by thanking you for clicking the play button. Let's talk about finding a way, not an excuse. The reality distortion field. Guy nicknamed Bud Tribble. He was a vice president of software technology at Apple Inc. And as Apple was developing that very first Macintosh computer back in 1981, Bud used that phrase to describe Apple's founder, Steve Jobs. The reality distortion field. The term seems to have originated in a 1966 episode of Star Trek when it was used to describe how the aliens encountered by the crew of the Starship Enterprise, they just created their own new world through mental force, a reality distortion field. And it seems that the great thinkers who are doers like Steve Jobs, they embrace and rather enjoy living in the reality distortion field of their own making. That is, they see things the rest of us don't. And it could be argued they see things the way they would like to see things. Vivid imagination coupled with obsessive drives to produce, well, it's it's Steve Jobs. It's Elon Musk. My question, is it distortion? Is that really what it is? I guess it is when it's compared to the current state. You couple the term reality to it, and that makes it seem as though it's delusion you know, something that's necessarily inaccurate, unreal, not true to reality. You know, it's kind of like a a photograph that's distorted or the lens of a pair of misprescribed glasses. Things are, we're not seeing things the way they really, really are. It's just flat out not true. But as I look and study the achievements of self-driven maniacs to build great things or to solve really big, massive, complex problems, it, it doesn't seem delusional to me. I could be wrong. You know, rather, these seem to be imagined by people that are just capable of seeing what the rest of us can't or and or they want to see what the rest of us Maybe don't want to see. And I don't mean in, the, in that sense of, of disinterest. I mean, take Elon Musk. He seems fascinated, if not preoccupied, by Mars, going to Mars, colonizing Mars. Uh, you know how much interest I have in anything related to Mars? Yeah, I mean, you can't, there, there is no measurement that could measure how low my interest is in that for some reason he has interest in that. And so he's, that's what he pays attention to. That's where his focus is. I, I I don't think about Mars. This is the first time I've probably uttered the word Mars in a long, long time. (laughs) 
Aristotle is quoted as having said, no great mind has ever existed without a touch of madness. And madness, of course, is a very subjective thing because what could appear as madness to one person could feel like brilliance to somebody else. It might even feel ordinary to some. George Bernard Shaw wrote in Man and Superman, the reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable one persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. Um, I think, you know, I think maybe that term, unreasonable, maybe that better conveys what really is going on here. Because it may be less about a reality distortion field. It may be more about an unreasonable or a beyond current reasoning point of view, thinking about what's possible. I mean, that may be more of what's going on here. It's a reality bending field where the unreasonable man adapts or bends the current reality into some new, hopefully improved future version of reality. And then it just continues. It continues over and over again. Apple introduced the iPhone 15. Uh, they have since also produced some new Apple MacBook Pros. I've upgraded just recently within the last month or so to an iPhone 15 Pro. I had an iPhone 13 mini. Frankly, I loved it. I just went in on a lark one day. I'm an AT&T customer. I went into the AT&T store and said, you know, what is this thing got any trade-in value? Oh, yeah, yeah. Probably a thousand bucks. I said, oh, there's no way. Guy looks it up and says, okay, $700. And I'm thinking, okay, well, I paid $729 for it two years ago. I mean, that's not bad. Use a phone for two years, cost you 29 bucks. Yeah, of course. I was paying for service all along. So I traded it in, got an iPhone 15 Pro that's going to cost me, it's going to cost me, I think, 300 bucks, give or take, over the span of three years, in addition to the, that trade-in. So I got an iPhone 15. I'm currently producing today's show. This show is on a 2023 Apple MacBook Pro, uh, but they just came out with brand new ones. In 1984, I purchased the very first Apple Macintosh computer. Well, that was then. This is now. I'm I'm now recording on a on a MacBook Pro that is about a year old, if that, and it's already been displaced. There's already a new one. You know, I mean, not even Steve Jobs at the time of his death in 2011 could have imagined the current technology. I remember watching him give some presentation on how he believed that the future was going to be drastically changed by audio in the sense of being able to use voice commands. And now we have Siri and we have, well, I can't say her name, but you know her. She is an Amazon employee or creation. And she's sitting nearby, so I can't use her name. But we have these now voice-activated technology that he was convinced were going to change things because it would just remove the barrier 
And it's easier to just speak than it is to type. He, he was right. But he couldn't have imagined, I don't think, I mean, 2011 doesn't seem all that long ago to some of us, but it was a lifetime ago in technology terms. Had he lived, he most certainly would have figured it out. Uh, do we have any doubt about that? He may not could have imagined it in 2011, but had he lived, had he survived and gone on to experience whatever 2011 and 2012 and 2013, there are many things he would have figured out. What would Apple look like today? It's massively, wildly successful, but I don't know. I don't know what it would have been. Who knows what bigger, better products may have emerged had Steve Jobs lived? We'll never know. October the 5th, 2011 is when he died. I mean, we're past 12 years ago. Who knows what he may have imagined? Who knows what he may have persisted as this kind of a mad genius in trying to bend the present technology to fit whatever his vision was of what it could be? It's what unreasonable men do and women Mostly, and this is really the point, mostly unreasonable people find a way, not an excuse. And that seems like a big contradiction to me. It's not, but I get that it can appear like a big contradiction to a lot of us. Unreasonable people finding a way, not an excuse. When it seems perfectly reasonable to make an excuse and to find an excuse and to lay blame. You know, we embrace different degrees and different characteristics of unreasonableness as we continue to navigate the chapters of our life. T.S. Eliot once wrote, only those who will risk going too far can possibly find out how far one can go. So I guess the question of the, of the moment is how unreasonable are you? And in what ways or about what things are you unreasonable? And are they positive things? Are they constructive things or are they negative things are they destructive things there are lots of people who are unreasonable in all of the worst ways and behave in ways that are absolutely self-destructive and destructive to humanity some of the titans of innovation have been so focused on what they could see and what they wanted that other people around them had to pay an enormous price for it sometimes a price willingly paid, sometimes maybe not. I mean, for example, there are many, many, many stories about high-level employees at Apple and other high-performing companies where they just burned out the intensity, the pressure, the elevated expectations, the pace, the speed, the stress, just enough, just enough. And so many opted to go elsewhere. Uh, some people might have experienced boredom because they wanted an even faster pace there are people where the expectation is lower and the strain is much less difficult and that's what they most crave and in the absence of those kinds of things that may have burned them out there are people who have worked for apple and other especially high-tech really high-performing organizations and now you know the the void in their daily joy um some got it, some report that they found it elsewhere, and others report that 
the very thing that they thought they disliked. It was the thing to which they were most addicted. I don't know. You know, is that unreasonableness that is positive is, or is that unreasonable that's destructive? I guess it, it, you know, it could be both simultaneously. Tom Peters coined a phrase in the book, In Search of Excellence, monomaniacs on a mission. And there are many, many stories of these monomaniacs on a mission. That is these people who are incredibly accomplished at work because they are so fixated on a pursuit, a single pursuit. And yet they are miserable human beings at home with their family and with their friends, maybe unwilling or unable, or, or just not knowing how to separate themselves from their pursuits. They can behave very poorly in their private lives maybe even in their public lives too, their professional lives. And yet there are people who are able to make that degree of tyranny work for them inside the confines of this singular professional pursuit. Steve Jobs is not noted as having been uh, the most pleasant human to be around. His genius may have illuminated a room, uh, but his personality did not. And yet I think about some of these monomaniacs on a mission and armed with a lack of desire to be liked at work. In fact, armed with apathy, just don't care. Don't care how people view them. Don't care. You know, often we find these monomaniacs on a mission unlikable no matter where they go and no matter who's around them because they are so obsessed with achieving whatever this thing may be that they're they're chasing. And again, we can ask the question, is that a level of unreasonableness that is simultaneously positive and destructive, positive and negative, positive in getting this thing done, maybe even some seemingly impossible thing, but destructive in that the accomplishment of that takes a toll. It takes a toll on people. It takes a toll on relationships. You know, the most unreasonable people I have found through both firsthand knowledge and through just reading the biographies of such people as Steve Jobs, these unreasonable people, it seems to me, just don't care. They are indeed monomaniacs on a mission. The hero worship uh, desire, and I guess to some degree we've all got that. We want, there's, there, we want to look up to somebody. We want to follow somebody, and that may prompt us to apply Benefit where there is no benefit that is, is even sought by the unreasonable person. There are plenty of people who absolutely still today, I'm going to use the word very loosely. I don't mean it in any religious context, but worship Steve Jobs. And yet Steve Jobs, I don't think was seeking for anybody. I don't think he was seeking for anybody's adulation or admiration or approval. I could be wrong. You know, we can ascribe the desire to solve some grand human problem when the reality may be that the unreasonable man is merely seeking <laughs> is seeking something that we may know nothing about. It could be that the unreasonable man, in some cases, could just simply be trying to outrun some youthful shadow that was filled with angst and pain and suffering, you know. It's fascinating to me that many of, of the highly accomplished people had an incredibly painful childhood. 
the desire to be somebody special in order to prove an abusive mother, an abusive or absent father, wrong. It happens. I'm not a statistician or a sociologist or a psychologist. Just making an observation. Perhaps the unreasonable person is simply driven to be rich and powerful. Other unreasonable people may be driven to just make a difference. There are unreasonable people that are highly accomplished and there may not be anything altruistic about their motives. Uh, and maybe we can find that hard to fathom that how could somebody be driven for something so basic, so primal. And yet we hear this over and over every time, every time there is a murder victim, my wife, I've said this before and, and I watch them as well, but uh, she's always been fascinated with detective kind of stuff. And I have too. And you know, there are tons of homicide and murder type shows and it's not any pursuit of gore. It's just, she's mostly intrigued by, you know, the mystery being solved. And it seems like every one of these shows, you know, some, somebody was murdered and no matter the circumstances of their murder, and no matter how they how they may have been in reality in real life, you invariably are going to hear, you know, they they were kind, they were helpful, they were loved by everybody. You know, it's it's like this person who is now dead, they were the best person on the planet. Yeah. Now, never mind that they were out at three AM doing bad things or immoral thing, you know, but they were and it seems kind of like that to me, especially with the highly high-performing, unreasonable person. You know, we're tempted maybe to characterize that high-achieving, unreasonable person as, you know, they just possess this deep yearning to do good. Well, you know what? History shows us that that just is not true. It's not accurate. And the kindest, the kindest of murder victims was clearly not loved by everybody, especially their murderer. That doesn't mean that all murder victims are bad people. That's not, don't misunderstand. This is not what I'm saying. It's just kind of fascinating to me that we can make these sweeping generalizations and we can ascribe to these people things that may or may not be true. That's really the point. Unreasonable, like most things, is not an absolute. There are degrees of unreasonableness. And there are many unreasonable people that don't get anything positive done. Don't care about getting anything positive done. There are degrees and there are exceptions on every extreme. Awareness, self-awareness. Now let's talk about us. Let's talk about you. Let's talk about me. When it comes to our unreasonableness our, our and our reasonableness and whether or not our conduct or our behavior is helpful or harmful, well, I mean, we got to think about what we're doing. We've got to think about our own lives and we've got to have some awareness about ourselves and who we are and what we are and how we're beha behaving and why we're behaving the way we are. And I don't mind telling you that it's, even though I'm an optimistic person, it's easier for me to focus on my detrimental behavior than it is my positive behavior. I, it's, it's a problem. I freely admit it. I look at my own life and I'm critical and I could argue I'm not critical enough maybe because there's detrimental behavior that I 
I likely should have fixed a long time ago. And I consider and look at, okay, what am I doing where if we look at that Hippocratic oath of first do no harm, okay, where, where am I doing harm? Where could I stop doing harm? What conduct could I completely eliminate? And it would be less harmful for me and for anybody else. And I'll tell you that what prompted most of this and what I guess what prompts most, most things that I tend to talk about here, you know, are notions of struggle and adversity and suffering and because it's come on, it's fairly common. We've all got it. We're all struggling. We're, we're all facing adversity. We're all suffering. And that's not to put a negative spin on anything because in spite of all of that, in spite of that truth that we all struggle, we all have adversity and we all suffer. There is also the positive in that it's through those things that we are benefited the most. It just is. It's true for you. It's true for your kids. And if you're old like me, it's true for your grandkids. And yet it's the very thing that we want to prevent. We, we want to stand in the way if we can. We don't want our family to suffer. And yet it's in the suffering where most of the value comes. Because strength is improved by struggling to overcome or by struggling to endure those things that we can't overcome. You're not going to fix everything that ails you. So yesterday, big shock, I'm recording this in advance. So actually, as you're listening, to, if you're listening to this the day it was released on November the 16th. So last week, go have my annual physical it's, it's, it's all fine. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm trying to find out, are there things that I need to fix? Are there things that I need to overcome? Is there something that I need to endure? So some unknown thing going on with me and some people <clears throat> can go to a, a, a physical and they may discover something that they can't do anything about. We can't solve every problem. We can't fix everything that befalls us. And I guess all of that in one big word, the word that keeps coming up in my mind, at least is resistance. It's resistance. Uh, other people fixate on, on the word constraint. It's our constraint in life. It's our problem. And yet in the midst of this problem, however big, however small we grow, we improve when we resist and when we don't resist, we don't grow. We don't improve. In fact, we weaken ourselves. If we don't resist, if we don't push back, if we don't find a way to figure out how to become a better warrior and battle harder, and it's not about winning every battle. But it is about fighting the fight, and it's about not losing so badly that we're not able to fight again. And physically, we may lose. People lose th that fight every day, every second of every day. You and I both know there is another battle goes on, right? There's the spiritual warfare that we're in. We're fighting for our soul. We're fighting for where we're going to spend eternity. We just are. If you're interested and you want to find out more about that, let me direct you to a friend of mine, letthebiblespeak.tv. Now, if you want to hear more from me about that kind of stuff, more spiritual kind of stuff, in 
thypaths.com. You know, finding an excuse is looking for somebody or something to blame so that we can avoid accepting responsibility. In short, it's about letting ourselves off the accountability hook. And we think that that's some path forward. We think that that feels like a good answer. It feels like a good response, but there's nothing warrior-like about it. It's completely cowardly. Finding an excuse is we avoid that corner. I, I talk about this when I, especially when I have to describe to people who ask me, who've never heard about people who do what I do, leadership, executive kind of coaching, and invariably somebody who, who gets curious about it. And I'm happy to have that conversation is like, well, so, so like, what do you do? What do you do exactly? And I had to, I thought about this for years and I never did have a really good answer. And in the, I don't know, in the past five or six years or so, I've begun to explain that, that I help people paint themselves into a corner where all the excuses are taken away. And now they have to come face to face with the reality of themselves. And as they look in the mirror with their back in the corner, nowhere else to retreat to. The only path forward now is, well, forward. That's where the magic happens. But finding an excuse is a way to avoid the corner. And the problem with that, the huge, huge problem with that is in the corner is where all the magic happens. That's where all the good stuff comes from. That corner where we can back into it, we can rid ourselves of all the excuses. We just jettison all of them where we... All that fuel, all that oxygen for our ex excuses, it's just gone. It's just poof. It's out of there. And we're in this corner and we're armed now with a mirror. And as we look in the mirror, we find a way forward. There is a reality to this that must be spoken. And as I encouraged you before to either go to letthebiblespeak.tv or endipaz.com, if you want a more spiritual bent, there is, there is a limitation. When we back ourselves into a corner and we take all the excuses away and we decide to own it and we look in the mirror, here's what I don't want you to come away with. I don't want you to come away thinking that all of the answers are within us. They are not. Some of them are. Because we have a responsibility. It's our life. And God created us with the ability to make up our own mind and to do what we want. That's on us. But to argue that we have the ability as humans to figure this all out for ourselves is colossal foolishness. I don't believe it. I know that we can't. In fact, Scripture says it's not in the way of man to direct his own steps. And it's not. We have God a creator. We have God a higher power to worship and to please. And we have a God who cares for us. And because he created us, he knows us better than we know ourselves. He has the answers. Doesn't mean that we're void of work. We've got to put in some work. But he's given us the ability to do that. So, you know, the choices. Well, they're dramatically different. 
and they result in dramatically different outcomes. Are we going to be a warrior? Are we going to fight? Are we going to find a way? Or are we going to find an excuse? And the choice is up to us. We can spend our days. We can spend our time finding excuses. And we will find weakness. And we will find failure. And we will find inefficiency. Or we can find a way. And we can discover strength and resilience and success. And oh, yes, we can also discover God. There are so many things that are going against the very nature in which we were created. You know, the belief that we've got all the answers, that if we'll get fixated on it, if we'll just marshal all of our intellect towards something that we can solve every problem, we can't. Much of modern culture preaches to us and teaches to us, and we're exposed to it every single day, that we ourselves are gods. And you can read history, secular and holy, and find that that's never worked out. It's never worked out. We aren't God, and we can't behave as though we are. God is God, and high time we begin to revere him as he is and for who he is and to understand our place in the world. And it's a big place. Don't get me wrong. We occupy a big place. I know that because the scripture tells me that God gave his only son to be the sacrifice for the sins that we committed. If that doesn't make us important, well, I don't know what would. Finding a way, not an excuse. It's leaning toward wisdom. Modern tales of an ancient pursuit. I'm glad you clicked play. I hope you are too. I hope you'll find a way forward. I hope if you have been relying on excuses, you'll stop. It's not profitable. I'm going to be taking some time off. Next week will be, well, a week or a week away from Thanksgiving, Lord willing. So I'm going to take a week, maybe two off, maybe more. I don't know. We'll just see how it goes. I hope you and your family have a great Thanksgiving. Hope everybody is happy and safe through the holidays. I'm glad that you're making this little podcast a part of your life. If you want to show some support for the podcast, just plenty of ways to do that. I'm trying to raise a little bit of money to start doing more video. You can find out about that by going to leaningtowardwisdom.com. Just scroll to the bottom of any of the recent episodes and you'll see ways that you can show your support if you choose to. But you've already shown me the biggest, biggest support that you can show me, and that's by clicking play, by just being here. And I greatly, greatly appreciate it. My name is Randy Cantrell. Greetings and welcome inside the Yellow Studio. Studio.